listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. Where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Caroline, and I'll be your host. If you follow education social media, you've probably heard of Salisbury Superintendent Randy Ziegenfuss. Over the last few years, he's become a leading advocate of learner-centered education. You can find Randy on Twitter, and he's always posting great content on Facebook, too. You can read more of his work at workingattheedge.org, where Randy blogs. We've got links to everything in the show notes, so don't worry about grabbing your pen to get those jotted down. With his assistant superintendent, Randy has produced more than 40 episodes of the Shift Your Paradigm podcast, which explores learner-centered education and leadership. Recently, Tom got the chance to catch up with Randy to find out what motivates him and informs his leadership. Let's listen in. Randy Ziegenfuss, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. My pleasure, Tom. Where did you go to high school, Randy? I uh, am currently actually working in Allentown, Pennsylvania, in Salisbury Township School District, but I went to high school in a neighboring district in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Um, So it was a rather large high school. Uh, I think we had probably like 600 kids in a graduating class, and that's large for around here. Wow. Um, I have to say... I don't remember a whole lot about high school other than I was, I was pretty good at playing the game of school. Um, I think I was very compliant probably because I had parents that demanded that. And um, I think that probably has fed into a lot of uh, what we'll get into later, I'm sure, in the conversation about um, learning and education. And those early days, though, I, I was definitely, um, I was a music person and uh, did like all the music stuff and probably stopped taking math as soon as I had to. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't all that memorable of an experience back in the eighties. What, uh, instruments did you play? So, uh, I started playing trumpet in probably like third grade. It was the year before most people started to play. For some reason, my parents wanted me to, uh, be a musician. And so that I'm grateful to them for. Um, and that was pretty much my life through, through college and into the early parts of my career. Um, I think it probably taught me a lot of the, of the kinds of things that we value now uh, in terms of skills and dispositions. Did you pick up any other instruments? Oh, yes. Uh, when I went to college, we obviously had to uh, uh, pick up all of the instruments <laughs> to some level, on, on sort of a beginning level, had to teach because our certification system here in Pennsylvania is uh, K-12 in terms of music. So you had to learn all the the instruments at a basic level to be able to teach kids at a basic level. But I picked up piano and then um, obviously in high school started to sing as well. So, uh, but but pretty much trumpet was my thing. And it was funny too, because I, <laughs> I think I aspired to be a high school band director and uh, I, I never was one. And that was probably good too. I had a, I had a somewhat less than positive uh, practice teaching experience at the high school instrumental level and decided I would probably go deaf if I was going to be a, a high, school, <laughs> uh, high school band director. So I ended yeah, up... God, God bless those people that are uh, band directors. When I, it, I you know, we, we just have gone through the beginning of the school year in the last month or so, and I've been in a lot of schools and listen to a lot of like middle school bands and, and that's a that's a pretty tough job being a you know the fall of the first time a kid joins a band right 
yeah, it's not it's not the prettiest thing. But usually, as the year goes on, it gets better. But well, I, th- this this leads me to an interesting question here. I think music teachers have a special appreciation for personalized and competency-based learning. Do you think that's true? I think it's sort of the nature of the of the domain. Yeah. Obviously very performance, you know, you're doing something and right. you know, that's based on, you know, certain levels of proficiency and, you know, lots of different kinds of skills uh, depending on the kind of music. Um, and also, you know, as you advance more, you know, later high school, early college, you know, how do you think of that music in the context of history? Um, you know, are there certain performance practices, you know, in a, in a Baroque piece, you know, being a trumpet player in college, I played a lot of Baroque music. Um, you know, there's certain performance practices that you can, you know, bring to your performance and how is that sort of evaluated or judged or appreciated by an audience? So I think definitely proficiency and, and competency and, and, you know, music is obviously a very intensely personal thing as well. And, uh, I think musicians become expert in certain areas that they have a passion for and interest for. And, and you have the, the agency to, to move in that particular direction of, you know, what, what kind of music you liked. And definitely in college, I was a Baroque kind of person. And uh, I remember I had a teacher that was, was very much pushing me into more contemporary music, which I didn't particularly appreciate at the time. But uh, yeah, there was lots of opportunities for personalization and certainly um, through all the different performance opportunities, very much competency-based public performances, you know, and that sort of thing. It's interesting that music teachers and I think world language teachers have this special appreciation for competency-based learning. They they physically can see almost daily, weekly, that every learner is on a different journey. Do you think that's true? Yeah, yeah. I think I can think back to my to my own days of uh, taking private lessons, actually. Um, And the kinds of conversations that we would have. Obviously, you know, that teacher knew me as a musician, knew me as an individual who had particular passions and interests and curiosities about certain kinds of music. Curiosities about learning in general, I think, too. And, um, would would be able to and skilled that uh supporting those things so i think you know you're right on tom with this idea that certain domains naturally gravitate towards these kinds of learning that we're talking about um, within education these days i i i don't um i, I don't know if we I, I guess i've often thought that music teachers and world language teachers could be school and and district-wide leaders on these topics i just don't think we very often take advantage of the the sort of unique experiences that they've had Uh, i think we could do more of that yeah and i think you know from a leadership perspective one of the connections i'm making to what you just said was as leaders how do we identify those pockets and and are we approaching are thinking about identifying who those pockets of teachers are that, or even those teachers that have that potential. Are we um, 
thinking in, in an equitable way about that? Or are we, are we still stuck in more of the traditional paradigm, like focusing on the, those who are in the traditional subjects? So I think this idea that leaders need to um, think more equitably, for lack of a better word, I guess, about who those people are that are doing doing those uh, positive things and have those mindsets already naturally there, maybe sort of being smothered by a lot of the school-centered things of the system. But if we, if we peel some of those back, what will we find? And I hope that we would be open to looking at a diverse group of, uh, diverse group of educators for that. In the, in the spring, I met a terrific uh, school leader in Albemarle County uh, with Pam Moran. And this school leader had been a, a band director in middle school and high school. And he said, Tom, uh, being a band director actually teaches you humility because by the time you get to high school, you have some kids that are better on, on a number of instruments than, uh, than you are. And it teaches you a sense of, uh, of humility. Do you think that's true? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's actually could be a good role model for, for all educators and leaders too, that especially in today's world, you, you, there's always somebody who, who has something you can learn from somebody who has some grain of expertise that um, is is greater than yours, and and that general sense of humility that you mentioned, I think, is could be valuable for for all of us, uh, and and in our classrooms too. You know, when we go in classrooms and seeing kids and just seeing some of the things that they're doing. And yesterday, for example, I um, I was in New York at the Social Good Summit, and one of the speakers was a 16 year old girl who, since 12 years old, has created um, a foundation where her mission is to get a cell phone into every girl's hand worldwide. And I was just sitting there thinking like, A, I probably couldn't do that now. And B, certainly at the age of 12, um, that wasn't on my radar. Um, but just to see that the talent and the just standing up in front of a group of a couple thousand people sharing her experience and her drive and her mission was like, wow, 16 years That's old. That's really exciting. What can I learn from that? A right. Lot. Um, something we can learn uh, from, from, uh, from everybody we meet. Uh, Randy, you were the uh, tech guy in Salisbury for six years. So how did you move from uh, being a, a music teacher to being a, a tech director? So interesting story. Um, most people probably have a frame of reference when they see a superintendent and they just sort of automatically assume there's been a particular trajectory to that, uh, to that role, um, at least in this part of the country and this part of the state that I'm in. Um, and I've definitely taken a different sort of non-traditional path. Um, I have not been a principal and, uh, so I came, my first administrative role was actually here in the district as the director of technology. Um, I'd spent 19 years in a, in a neighboring district and uh, decided to take a leadership role. Thought that would be exciting, something I was curious about. Um, and so I did that for seven years. And uh, there was uh, 
fairly forward-thinking superintendent at the time and assistant superintendent. And uh, they really brought me into the team with the idea of um, they knew they knew they something needed to change in the district in terms of living in a world that was so technology laden and and transforming outside of schools. How could our schools start to change that? So I was sort of brought on the team to to help drive that. And they were very supportive after six years and a retirement. Um, I was asked to be the assistant superintendent and had obviously in this transition of um, changing from pretty much an analog school district to a digital environment, um, had worked closely with the assistant superintendent who was involved in the curriculum at the time. So I sort of gained some experience around learning. I think I've always been fascinated and curious about learning. So despite coming from a music background, I love sitting in, you know, calculus class or history class or Spanish class and just watching and listening and learning along with the people that are there. So I think having a a curiosity for learning helped me get ready for that particular job. And then after two and a half years, the person who was superintendent left and uh, the board asked me to move into this role. And there was actually a moment where I was unsure because I, I sort of have this, <laughs> this idea that superintendents are viewed as in a certain way publicly. Um, and a lot of the things that it seemed to me like superintendents focused on were things like budgets and, uh, you know, athletic teams and fields and board members. And well, that's all part of the job. I just felt like there should be something more to it. And, and clearly I found out that there are a lot of superintendents that really do put teaching and learning at the core. And, um, that's something that I think since being in this role and working with our assistant superintendent, um, we've worked together very closely to make sure that, um, yes, we have to address the operational aspects of the system and the role, but those really are secondary compared to the main reason why we're here. And I think that's one of the fun things about leadership in this particular role is how do you, how do you manage that? Because sometimes those operational things can get very, uh, they can push off the, the teaching and learning side of things uh, because, you know, if you want to keep your job, you've got to address those managerial operational kinds of things. Um, but I think, you know, getting to this role, one of the, one of the things that changed my mind about saying yes to doing this was if I was going to say yes, I was going to work really hard with the people here to make the core of what we do learning. And, uh, I think that's been, this is, this is my fifth academic year in the role, and I think that that's pretty much part of the culture now. Hey listeners, we wanted to take a short break to make sure you know about a party we're throwing next week in Nashville. If you're ready to network in Nashville and you're going to be at the conference, we'd love for you to join us. Just email editor at gettingsmart.com to get your name on the list. Okay, now let's get back to Tom and Randy. You and I both have spent our careers in this unique period in history where we did make the shift from analog to digital learning. 
um, and you were able to do that as a tech director. And and now, in some respects, you're leading a second shift from uh, being school centered to to student centered. Uh, do you think you learned something uh, about systems change um, as an as an ed tech director during a really pivotal period in history? Well, I think <laughs> that um, so bef- before I came here, I was an instructional technology specialist after being a music teacher for twelve years. I was an instructional tech specialist in another district, and it, that was probably like late 90s and i think a lot of what we were doing back then was so not focused on learning it was so much about tools and you know we would offer like this whole smorgasbord of stuff over the summer about all these new tools and then by the next summer it would be just another new batch of stuff and it it was it just it just did not really focus on the learning and i think probably when I came here in 2006, that was probably the time when my thinking started to change about what really needed to be the focus. And, you know, you, you hear a lot about, you know, how schools have moved away from, you know, the tech tools and going to the learning first. What, what are you trying to accomplish? How does the tech cool tools help accelerate those qualities or elements of powerful learning? And I think that's probably when my thinking started to change. And then uh, it's it's interesting, this, this question, too, because as we went through, I think we've been one-to-one now for probably seven or eight years. And as we were working up to that point from 2006, this, this idea that we were focusing on the tech when we were trying to get to -to one-to-one, but then as soon as that barrier was removed, it was like we could all breathe a sigh of relief and now we could focus on the learning. And that's when I think mindsets really started to shift uh, away from this idea of stuff and of the structures of school as well to what really is powerful learning and, and what do we believe about powerful learning? And I think that's been one of the most fun things over the last couple of years is several years is to really focus the conversations in the district about learning. And I, and I see so many other schools, they don't even talk about learning. The, the word never comes up. Uh, and I don't mean to be critical, but I, I think that's definitely a missing link these days um, that they're the dominant conversation in education is around you know, mechanisms that control and, and it, we rarely get deep down into learning and like challenging our assumptions about what do we actually believe about this? Um, so it's been, it's been fun to, to go through that journey. This is my 32nd year now, and it's been fun to actually go back and, and see how we've gone through these cycles and to see how, my thinking has changed and then consequently being able to influence people within an organization. But it changed it. Randy, it sounds like it's been more of an evolution towards student-centered learning than a a particular experience that was sort of revolutionary for you. Is that fair? I would say generally speaking from the 35,000 foot level, it probably looks like 
evolution, but I will tell you there was one moment in time when it clicked and um, we had been on uh, a study tour through Lehigh University to Johns Hopkins uh, University uh, probably uh, three or four years ago. And um, the dean of the college, I don't remember what his name was, the College of Education, had been on that, the group at Education Reimagined that um, defined their vision document. Um, He had been on that group of stakeholders, the 34, I guess, that had uh, come together to create that. And I remember reading that and thinking like, okay, now this all makes sense. And I know I've always felt this kind of dissonance that there was just something that wasn't, didn't quite feel right, but I didn't know how to actually put it into words or, or communicate it. And then I remember after reading that, then it, then it all like clicked like a light switch. Yeah. So three or four years ago. Yeah, probably. Yeah. It was around this time too. It was around October or so. Um, so yeah, that was, that was definitely, and then, then it all started sort of avalanche and I, curiosities developed and whatnot. Well, that's about the time um, I spotted you on social media because it felt like somebody shot you out of a cannon <laughs> at the time. And and I I remember about three years ago thinking, who's this guy in central Pennsylvania who's on student-centered learning? He's, uh, he's really on fire. Um, so... I I think we both um, were really inspired by the early work that Education Reimagined did. I know we helped them uh, with their launch communication, um, and and we've uh, both been involved in supporting their efforts since. I, I think in in your district you really adopted those principles as part of your strategic plan. Is that Fair to say? We did, yeah. So um, a couple, uh, let's see, three years ago, actually, no, this is the third year, so maybe four years ago, we um, started to ask the question of what knowledge, skills, and dispositions will our graduates need to be successful in career and life once they leave us. Um, so we met with all sorts of different stakeholders, really, over the, over the course of a year and sort of did our own little action research. And then out of that question, came the question of, all right, if this is our vision, if these are our outcomes, what do our learning environments, our current learning environments need to look like? And the kinds of things that people were talking about, and they didn't exactly articulate it in the words that, let's say, Education Reimagine uses, but, you know, minimizing test scores and getting to know kids and what are they curious about and connecting, you know, connecting content to... Um, what what kids are passionate about, may, having it be personalized and making making sense of that, um, having learners make sense of that. Um, then it then we started to see that a lot of those things that people were talking about lined up nicely with those those five elements. So we've we've pretty much been organizing our conversations here with staff, parents, students, community, board, all stakeholders, principals. Uh, around those five elements because they they really do capture the essence of 
the way we learn, the essence of powerful learning experiences with and without technology too. So Randy, you're a superintendent, I guess you're almost four years into this role, is that right? Yes. Mm -hmm. In uh, Salisbury, that's uh, Allentown, Pennsylvania. And it's really a one high school district. It, it's interesting, uh, Randy, I visited a lot of small uh, school districts in Pennsylvania in the last year. And it's, it's amazing how innovative uh, many of them are. It's um, districts that are four or 5,000 students in one high school um, can really move very quickly on a K-12 um, basis to, to really transform learning. Um, and, and I'd love to know a little more about where you are in the, in the journey at, uh, at Salisbury. Where, where did you start and how would you gauge your progress, uh, both elementary and secondary on the journey? So I would say even even after a couple of years, I would say um, we're at a pretty nascent stage. Um, you know, hearing some of your other podcasts where you're visiting schools and and um, being very curious about how how they've gotten to where they are, I think it also explains or brings brings to to light the importance of context too. Right. That, you know like individual learners, every school is different. And I think that we've been, um, for better or worse, we've organized our support systems, our professional learning um, around realizing that each of our four schools, and they're small schools by standard, um, each of our four schools has unique personalities. They have unique strengths, they have unique challenges um, in terms of their staff, in terms of their students. And so we've given agency to those buildings um, to take the profile and to take those um, beliefs about learning and to have their own focus and organize their own work. So we've, we've intentionally not standardized the process um, and said like, okay, everybody's going to work on competency-based education or everybody's going to work on open-walled um, We've, we've not dictated that, and um, we're now in our third year. We're at the, just the very beginning of the year. We actually haven't even had our first professional learning yet. Um, that's coming up in October. But the, the previous two years, um, we started with pockets of uh, basically interested teachers, um, teachers that were curious, um, were already doing maybe some innovative things or maybe not doing innovative things, but had that propensity to take some risks and give it a go. And um, so we, we focused on that the last couple of years, and they focused on various pieces. And, and basically, we've given them license to experiment and, you know, maybe to our detriment, not setting um, a kind of expectation where um, they've had to have some sort of glorious deliverable at the end. But, you know, if a teacher wants to, to experiment with agency and giving up control in their classroom, you know, how do, what does that look like across the year and how does the principal support that? Um, and most importantly, through the reflection process, how do they feel like they're growing in that area? And then how 
can they become a teacher leader and help others shift their mindset as well? And that, I think that's that's the biggest part of this. It's about shifting mindsets and you can't force that. If you force it, then you become more like a school-centered leader. And if you if you create the conditions there, people come to that in their own time, then that's much more learner-centered and it's going to be much more meaningful them and for them. And I think that maybe that's why things have seen a little bit slow. Um, so where are we? Um, a couple of things that I could highlight. Um, last year, uh, we did some experimenting with a handful of internships at the high school. So this idea that um, particularly when you're getting close to the end of your high school career, you have a passion or an interest. Who can you connect with? Um, we did some internally, and this year we'll be doing some externally. Uh, so we had um, two high school media interns. We have a pretty good media program at the high school. And so they had um, basically a half of their day was um running the television station, going out and um, finding stories in the community, doing interviews, finding um, stories in other schools here, and um, running that whole production. So they um, did, at the end of the year, they did a sort of portfolio-type presentation, and it was fascinating to hear about just how powerful that experience was for them, and um, really how they wanted their peers to have that experience too, and how it far exceeded their expectations going into it. Um, at our middle school level this year, and this will be somewhat fascinating to follow, um, we're doing a kind of school within a school. Um, so we have a principal and um, a couple of teachers, and we're focusing, this is really just prototyping, um, focusing on sixth grade. So for about half of the day, um, we have 18 students who work with these two teachers, uh, and they're breaking down some of the barriers. Like there aren't no, there are no typical tests. There's no grades, different kinds of feedback, different ways of engaging, uh, parents in this process. And what I think is most interesting about that too, is as we work to build momentum here, how do we harness, um, the interest of the parents uh, in this kind of learning for their students to help scale this up even more. So, um, like I said, it's a prototype. We're, um, we've got two really passionate teachers and a passionate principal that are curious and excited and interest about, interested in creating um, some very different learning environments from what kids experience typically yeah, here. interesting that you mentioned parents, because if you tried to implement an early version of that uh, district-wide, it would get killed. You, you'd have a thousand parents at a school board meeting complaining yeah. mm -hmm. about what you're doing. One, because you weren't very clear about it. Two, because you weren't very good at it. Right, And three, because it's very different. And so it, it raised resistance. So starting small and building on interest of both parents and students is uh, is it really way to, a smart way to start a new experiment? Well, and I think it's this, from a leadership perspective, I think it's when you're supporting innovation, I think you have to start at the edges where right. there's the, the natural immune system of the organization isn't, <laughs> isn't ready to pounce on it, like you said. Right. And uh, I think Craig Christensen has, has taught us that. I, 
Yes. Randy, I also want to acknowledge that you're talking about supporting work at the edges and by people interested, but but you, your plan really does lay out a beautiful framework, one that talks about personalized, relevant, contextualized learning, competency-based, high learner agency, learning that's socially embedded, you know, it's open-walled and community-connected. So you really do have a beautiful, uh, a beautifully art- articulate framework. And and as the leaders in uh, Mesa County, Colorado, and Albemarle, Virginia have described it, you're allowing, encouraging people to grow into a framework. Is that a useful way to think about this? Yeah. And I think that, you know, the framework provides the space for people to shift their mindsets. It provides the opportunity for them to bump up against components of that framework and to pause and reflect on, you know, what am I currently doing? And is what I'm currently doing in alignment with that? Are they based, you know, do they have the same underlying assumptions? And oftentimes it doesn't. And I think that's really I think from my, our, I think our leadership challenge here is is that takes time. <laughs> it takes time for people to grapple with that, and it's not something that can come top down. And um, it it takes time, and things are slower than we than we might want them to be sometimes because I, of that. So, one one challenge of taking this uh, approach of of spotting and and um, supporting teacher leadership and inviting people to grow into a framework is that progress happens at different rates and speeds uh, and it can create inequities in the in the district and I wonder how you think about the tension between innovation and and equity yeah I think that we have to make sure that when we have innovations that prove to be powerful or successful from a leadership standpoint we need to move those things or similar experiences to scale up so that we don't have those inequities, so that we don't have those kids that are in sixth grade years down the road, if this school within a school becomes successful and scales up somehow, that we don't have kids that don't have the opportunity to become part of that. So I think, you know, from a leadership perspective, we can't there's no stasis. We can't be satisfied when we sort of reached our goal with the innovation. It's then how do we take that further so that becomes an opportunity that that all kids can happen? And what do we learn from that innovation that can then be applied to other innovations or others that are working on those innovations? What are those things that we've learned? So it's important that we reflect upon that and be ready to take those leadership steps that help to scale that up and not just let them sit yeah. there. In, in some respects, it's like the one-to-one work that you led, that it um, it created, you were a bit preoccupied with the transition for a few years, but it created a platform that became consistent across the district, right? That just changed the opportunity set for everybody. Yeah, that's a that's a good parallel. Yeah, I would agree with that. So, Randy, um, you started a podcast a few years ago called Shift Your Paradigm, and uh, a lot of us have really enjoyed it. Um, You've interviewed a lot of, I don't know, I I might call them alternative education leaders, people um, 
that that might be kind of challenging for a lot of public school people to to learn about. Um, I guess tell us what you're trying to to do with that shift uh, your paradigm podcast. Sure. So the, I, I will I'll admit that I think it started more for selfish reasons. Um, Lynn, uh, who is our assistant superintendent, and I got really curious about the leadership lens on this idea of learner-centered education. So as we as that flip as that switch was flipped and we began personally to understand better this idea of learner-centered and, and realize that we weren't doing that and we weren't there and we need to get there because that's what's going to serve our kids best. Um, we became, we started to ask the question of, okay, so how do you lead this? And it's got to be different than the kind of leadership that we learned earlier in our practice and that we learned when we went to, quote, leadership school. Um, there must be something different about this. It just, it just made total sense. So how could we answer this question? So we started our own little action research project. And uh, I remember reaching out to Education Reimagined and saying, is anyone talking about this? Does it make any sense? And they thought it was a, an interesting question. And then they connected us early on um, with many of the people that we spoke to. And um, then it just sort of snowballed from there where um, when we find um, on sites like Getting Smart podcast, uh, the uh, uh, education pioneering newsletter, and just on social media, all the schools that are doing some of this good work on the edges, reaching out to them and asking if we could have a conversation, particularly about leadership, but also listening to the learners around, you know, what is it like to learn in this environment? And then moving into that conversation around leadership. And it's been, um, it's, it's definitely been transformational, I think, for us uh, in realizing that there, that school-centered leadership is different from learner-centered leadership. Um, I was, uh, in addition to the global um, summit at, in New York yesterday, I was Saturday. I went to the uh, the Weiss gathering in New York. It was uh, it's run by the country of Qatar, and it was like 350 people, an international audience, and um, panels on some really interesting topics like uh, educational leadership and uh, skills for the fourth industrial revolution, some really fascinating thinkers. Um, but the conversation around educational leadership and moving towards learner-centered, I found that it was, it was the people who were on the panel were still thinking about this through a school-centered lens. Um, not once did they actually mention the word learn or learning. Um, they mentioned student-centered, but they, we never really heard a conversation around learning. And just the, the you know, that policy, how do we get over policy? And, um, you know, policy is constricting and policy is very school-centered and policy is a reality. But there's also a lot of ways that we can push against policy subtly without people even noticing it. Um, and we can get, we can get, I'll say get away with a lot before people start to notice things. And I just, I felt like their lens was very school-centered um, as opposed to learner-centered. And, and, you know, the example that I can give you is, you know, how 
we approach teachers. We approach teachers as learners. Um, we can dictate it through evaluation systems that they do certain things. We can, you know, go in and check things off of a list when we do a walkthrough that might sound uh, somewhat evaluative. But how as a learner-centered leader do you turn that around? And do you, instead of viewing your role as dictating or top-down, how do you engage in a conversation that understands who that teacher is? What are their strengths? What are their challenges? How can you create opportunities for them to find an entry point into some of this work? How can you have non-evaluative conversations with them? So I think there's definitely a difference between the two. And through these conversations on the podcast, we've come come to believe what some of those things are. Well, a lot of us appreciate um, the the folks around the edges, uh, as, as you said, that you've been interviewing, you've talked to people in the, um, like Catherine at Workspace, um, who, who works with some homeschool families to create alternative uh, learning experiences. You've talked to forest uh, preschools, the sort of outdoor ed people. Um, you, you've really brought a very interesting group of learners together on your podcast. And, uh, and a lot of us appreciate that you almost always include a, a learner and a leader on the podcast. And I, it's been a, a beautiful feature of your conversations. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. Appreciate your, your willingness to share your positive thoughts on it. It's very important. Thank you. What are you uh, most curious about or challenged by uh, looking forward? So I, th- I think it may sound like a cop-out answer, but I think leadership is definitely the thing that uh, I'm personally most curious about and particularly um, the role of principal leadership. Um, I think one of our learnings early on uh, in doing this work three or four years ago, starting it, was... Um, and this was very school centered, uh, was that a lot of it was being driven by central office. And I think that's a, you know, a very dominant paradigm. Central office drives things down to schools. And I think that, you know, it, it is our role to play the, the visionary oftentimes, but it's really the principle that has the everyday contact with teachers. And, and they're such a critical part of, this transformation of what happens in schools and and how do we create the space for our principals to have their own deep understanding of this work and i think the podcast is one of those one of those things that i think we've created um because early on we got the question of well who else is doing this and how are they doing this and where are their public schools that are doing this and I think the podcast has helped to create the space for leaders in our district and outside to understand that a lot of what we're theorizing about or writing about or thinking about actually does happen in places. And how can that happen? And what can we learn from that? Uh, and there are different contexts. And you know, what is it about their context and, and what they're doing that can translate to us? So I think I'm really curious about how do we best support the principal role in, in really accelerating 
this transformation? Because I think that's a key piece. We don't, we here in central office, we don't see teachers every day. Now we're in a small place, so we see teachers a lot, but I don't, I don't get to have conversations with teachers on a daily basis in every school. If I'm a principal, I have, you know, 30, 40, 50 teachers that I see every day and I can do walkthroughs and I can engage in conversations and build relationships and, and start to create a culture within the school that aligns with the vision and really helps to move it forward. Um, so I think that's my biggest curiosity. How do we support principals in this transformation? Randy, it's uh, been fun to watch your your transformation as a learner and a leader. Um, we appreciate the the blogging and the podcast. Uh, you you've really helped a lot of us learn more about this. I, I know you've helped teachers and leaders feel uh, less alone and less less crazy about their journey, just to know that there's other people on a similar path. So we uh, we really appreciate your leadership on uh, so many fronts, and it's been great to have you on the Getting Smart podcast. Well, thank you, Tom. And I would also, I would be remiss if I didn't also share that this is a collaborative effort uh, with many people here in the district, our whole leadership team, and particularly my counterpart, uh, our assistant superintendent, Lynn Funyhatton. Um, it's, it's definitely a team effort. One person can't do all this heavy lifting. Uh, so we create the capacity for others to work with us. So I'd like to share the appreciation with them as well. Thank you, Randy. Thanks, Tom. A big thanks to Dr. Randy Sigenfus. We appreciate his leadership and advocacy and look forward to following along with his work. If you want to hear another great discussion with a student-centered leader, listen to episode 163 with Dr. Pam Moran. We've got it linked in the show notes below. And of course, if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to your podcast. It helps us get better and more of your friends can find us. That's it for today. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart Podcast. This is Caroline signing off.